If you could sit with a former counter-terrorist CIA agent, what would you ask? What stories would you want to hear? And how would you extrapolate their experience to apply in your own life of how to still move and have agency in the middle of scary moments, times of transition? Would you want to learn how to physiologically calm your central nervous system so that you can think rationally on your feet and make decisions that propel you forward for your big mission in life? We are with Michelle Hassad. She is a former CIA intelligence officer who focused on counterterrorism and counterintelligence. The majority of her career was spent in the Middle East alongside her husband, Joseph. I read all about it in the book, Breaking Cover. Today, her and her husband, Joseph, serve as consultants for companies doing business throughout the Middle East. They are passionate about inspiring others to push through their fears to fulfill the mission God has for them on the earth. Thank you so much for being our guest, Michelle. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dr. Crawford. This is such a huge deal. You guys, I read the book, audio listen, let's be honest. I audio listened to her book a year ago or more, and I have been trying to harass her in different ways. I finally let it go. And then it came back in this really random, weird God way that I get to be with her today. So this is a huge honor. Oh, well, uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm very honored to be a part of your special podcast. Thank you. Okay, so give us some of the, like, whatever you're able to. I know redacted, we have to be careful. I did go to the Spy Museum in DC and I was the craziest fan the world's ever seen. <laughs> I was there all day. <laughs> um, so what are you allowed to share of any of your stories from being a CIA agent? Uh, surprisingly, a lot of them, as you saw in Breaking Cover, uh, the CIA let uh, let me talk a lot about um, my experiences, some of the scary things I experienced. You know, we always have to protect sources and methods. Of course. We want to protect people's lives. We don't want to put anyone at risk. But in, there's just, as you can see, so many funny and weird cultural experiences from that those 10 years that I'm, I am allowed to share, which is great. Awesome. Well, we want to hear some. What comes to mind that you think others listening would love to hear? So, I mean, I think the one that people find the most fascinating is what is it actually like to get in front of a terrorist? And, and especially as a female yeah. in the police dealing with people whose ideology tell them that, you know, women should never leave the home unless they have a male escort and unless they're totally covered. Mm -hmm. You should never be alone in a room in the, in the room with a woman who's not your your spouse or your child or your sister. So imagine that you're now meeting them as a counterterrorism official of the CIA, and obviously they don't think very much of you, <laughs> and they don't think you should be doing this kind of work, and you're certainly not capable. And so you think, okay, here, my very first experience getting in front of a terrorist in a meeting, it was my husband's source and it was in Baghdad. So we were there and like during the worst part of the, the war in 2006 and 7. And I was trying to get to the bottom of who had 
ordered and executed a very brutal attack against an American woman on the streets of Baghdad. And so my job was to go in and try to figure out like who who did this. And so as part of this effort, um, all of these officers let me get in front of their their terrorist sources to ask these questions. And, you know, it's one thing to read about terrorists and these guys and their ideology. And it's a whole different experience to be in front of them. Yeah. It's so fascinating. And so the psychology of that interaction, I think, is what everyone finds so fascinating and love about breaking cover. So, you know, I'm thinking about all I have to achieve in this meeting with this man. And I know very well, because of all my studies and time in the Middle East, what he thinks of me. And when you walk into a room like that, you can't help what you're walking into. Like you can't help what other people think yeah. about you. Right. But you have to deal with it. Yeah. And you have to know what it is if you're going to challenge it. And so I, I realized in that moment, like I had been told, oh, you can't do this and you can't do that as a female by the agency and by culture. And, and in that moment, I was like, you know what, Michelle, just forget about what everybody said you can and cannot do. You know this culture. You walk in there and you do what you have been working for years to do. Yeah. And so um, I walked through the door and I knew that immediately I was going to be dealing with a man who would be very excited to be in the room with a woman. Excited? It's totally illicit, but, and so because it's illicit and haram, um, it's so exciting. <laughs> okay. I wasn't even thinking that direction. That makes sense. Yes. And I don't, you know, people are like, what well, probably thinking, why are you even bringing this up? But like, I have, you have to understand these. Yeah, crazy the context. Yes. And that. So I know they're going to be very excited. He, you know, is going to be so excited to see me. It's going to be um, in his mind, a, a bad thing to do that he gets to do because they act all holier than now, but really they're not. Mm -hmm. Um so I walk in the door and I, I walk across the room knowing that he's cataloging everything about me because these guys are really street smart. Yeah. So, you know, what you look like, how you carry yourself, how you're standing, how you're walking, how, how you're talking, like everything. But I'm also doing the same thing. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> That's right. I'm doing it back. Um, and I we're both assessing each other the con constantly the entire time. But anyway, I, I know immediately that he's going to have these uh, preconceived ideas of me as a female, and I have to challenge them. So the first thing I do is I, I go to shake his hand and I say, Salamu alaikum, kefik ya Abu Muhammad. And I start speaking to him in Arabic. Mm fascinating because I'm watching his eyes and they're, his eyes are like, what is going mm -hmm. You're speaking Arabic? A bit Kalamarabi? And I'm like, yes, yes, I guess I speak Arabic. And so I tell people it's a small thing, but immediately I've got him off his game yes. because he thinks he knows who I am, but he doesn't really know who I am. He underestimated you. Mm -hmm. yes. He still doesn't know what he's dealing with, but at least I've shocked him. And then I say to him, Abu Muhammad, I have been very impressed what you have accomplished in um, a lot, working alongside your case officer. And I know that, you know, what you guys did last week, all the, the intel you collected probably saved dozens of lives. And I want you to know, mm. I really appreciate that. But you're honoring him. Appreciate that. Yes. Okay. Terrorist who's bad, but not the worst, right? You're developing an asset who's going to help you against worse bad guys. Yeah, I know that's the that's the that's where we're splitting hairs here. So he is a right. bad guy who's decided to work with his enemy 
because if, for whatever reason, and there's a whole host of those, why he might say, okay, I'm going to stop carrying out attacks and I'm going to work with you. And the whole, you know, a lot of motivations for that. But, and so he really is a bad guy. And <laughs> he's killed a lot of people, I'm certain. But for now, he's working with us. And, you know, you have to honor that because if it's ever found out that he is working with the CIA, that's it. They don't ask questions first. You know, how do you can... know he's not a double agent? Yeah. <laughs> the perpetual question in the CIA. Of course. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is what made that job so challenging. And the the what I realized was that we were dealing with so many who were double agents or fabricators. And so you always had to walk in that that room, you know, kind of assuming the worst until I can figure out otherwise. Sure. It's possible double agent for sure. And so anyway, I, I complimented him. That's the second thing I did in that meeting. And what you see is this, like this, uh, response. It's like your, their ego being stroked and feeling good. Mm -hmm. And, but also on a very, you know, uh, covert psychological level, because I'm complimenting him, I am raising my stature. Because uh -huh. I'm telling him what I think of him. Uh-huh. So it's a very interesting kind of, you know, because I know I'm starting out on ground level with this guy. And this is one of the ways in which I'm raising myself. Um, and he doesn't even realize it. It's so subtle. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm telling him how I assess his information and, and his value as a person. And then last but not least, I have one more thing that I know I need to do in order to get this guy to take me seriously and get down to business. And that is to show him I'm intelligent. And so I start speaking to Abu Muhammad about, you know, some, um, some of the, the dynamics of what's going on in Iraq and the sectarian strife. And I'm not a kind of person who likes to showcase my strengths. I, I think I'm a little bit more humble than that, but in these moments with these terrorists, you got to absolutely you know, <laughs> slap them in the face with it. Yes. This is fascinating. Yeah, so you, you can't play small. You know, market your intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting because his response was like, wow, you really know Iraq? I'm like, yes, brother, I do. I have been studying the Middle East. I've been traveling. He's like, how do you know Iraq? Like, how do you know this stuff? I'm like, I have been traveling, I have been studying, yeah. and he, like, his mind was blown because, you know, most Americans and most non-Arabs have no idea, right. and so it was, it was such an out, and a, like, so different outlier for him. But it was weird because in that moment, like, that third thing that I accomplished, that third dynamic, that third a strategy was what turned him and in that moment I could just you know feel the tension in the room you could that you could have cut with a knife earlier suddenly dissipated wow. and as Abu Muhammad realized like oh my gosh I like her she's really smart and I want to work with her and she respects me which means she has good taste <laughs> <laughs> yes because there, you know there's a lot of narcissists <laughs> yes um so yeah and so it's interesting to realize that what up until that moment that what my mentors in the CIA and others had characterized as a weakness, which would be being a female, you know, mm -hmm. a smiley, a smiley person. Like I'm not a severe person. I'm not like a break it down kind of, you know, yeah. But that my personality would be seen as a weakness in the Middle East. But what they did not take into account was my emotional intelligence and how my empathy and my knowledge of the Middle East could be used in a particular way to like make that my strength. Yes. I love that. 
Yeah. And I think so many times, especially I'm thinking in a corporate setting, right? So someone who's listening to this and maybe you're from a different background, maybe you're female, maybe you're a different ethnic background and you don't have the posh pedigree and know all the inner circles and you just feel like the little outlier that everybody would look at and be like, sorry, you're kind of capped in your situation. So whatever we see as disqualifying, we can come under a mental cap and then we stop asserting ourselves because we take on a victim role. And so everybody had told you kind of like, here's your limitations. And if you had taken that, I think you would have played small and it would have been a self-fulfilling prophecy. So how fun that we watched you be a rogue agent in a good way of breaking that glass ceiling, not through entitlement and being angry and pushing your way. And I think a lot of uh, females in particular tend to try to become men because they think if I'm aggressive, I'm assertive, I'm a B-I-T-C-H boss, then all of a sudden you'll be taken more seriously. But we're saying in the Middle East with a bad guy terrorist, you were able to use strategy and psychology to actually win someone over and create leverage that actually got to your end goal. Yes. So if we now position what you just shared, how might we parlay that and say, okay, somebody is new on the job and they have an opportunity, they're in front of someone, this is an impossible situation. What keys would you give them now from your experience? So I always tell people, you have to understand what other people think of you. So you know what you need to challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, my colleague who's 250 pounds and six, two is going to be perceived very differently than me. Sure. It's just, you know, it's just the way right it is. longer indifferent. It's just reality. Reality. And it's not a bad or evil thing. It's just reality. We all have preconceived notions sure. of others. So I just say like, you have to know what they are. And I, I also say, no one wants to be preached at. Nobody wants to hear like, I, I can do this, I can do that. They want to see you do it. So I, I say don't win people over with your words, win people over with your actions. Yes, yeah. So I they could, tell. I could you, know, you know, speak to my bosses and my mentors till I'm blue in the face about how I know the Middle East. I have a master's degree in Arab studies. How about I show them? And, you know, because since they never gave me a chance, that's all I had was to demonstrate that, that expertise yeah. and so it was in taking projects nobody else wanted. Okay. So demonstrating instead of complaining, yes. which we did say show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Show, don't tell. Yes. There's so much power yeah. in the act, right? Mm -hmm. And then it would, the other thing would be like, okay, so I was prevented from doing a lot of this kind of work those first few years. So you know what I did? I <laughs> it was very subversive. I took projects other people didn't want. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you're willing to do the grunt work to earn the street cred. So then now you're recognized and set apart instead of waiting for the cherry picked, which I think a lot of us, right, wrong, or indifferent, we're like, hey, I'm, I'm more advanced than that. I'm more educated. I have more experience. I should be picked for X, Y, or Z. And we're actually capping our ability to show our distinctness by doing maybe some lower opportunities that are pedigreeing you to the next level. Yes. In fact, you know, that whole, the, the reason why I was even in that room doing that thing was because I took something that no one else wanted to do. Like mm -hmm. everyone was already drowning from all the work that we had going on in a war zone. Yeah. It was like, no one had time for another project. And mm -hmm. I kept taking those projects and I said, you know what? I am going to show my expertise by doing a good job, whether people are looking or not. Come on, integrity. Yes. <laughs> integrity, you know, and so it's, it's playing the long game. 
You know why? Because it takes longer. But when you get there, you get there big. Mm -hmm. Life is just a demonstration of that. Like, I'll never force myself in a room. I'll never out-debate someone. I'm never going to talk over other people. I'm just going to wait in the back. I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow. And I'm going to, you know, keep pushing forward one step at a time. And I find that when you play the long game, it's far more impactful in the long, you know, than just yelling, yelling to get your way or... Mm -hmm. (laughs) And becoming something you're not or becoming bitter and resentful, feeling like a victim and blaming instead of winning them over through your work ethic, your excellence, your knowledge. And I think we don't hear that enough in culture. Everything is supposed to be so fair, but in reality, life is not fair. And so each person is responsible to say, okay, what are the cards I'm dealt? And some of those actually may be an asset if I know how to play it wisely. So you being a female it, with, if you're listening to the audio, she has whiter, fairer skin, not Middle Eastern skin. Um, so she doesn't necessarily look like, or her age was probably younger. She didn't have the seniority. All of her mentors are like, hey, you know, here's your limits. And so yet using that to her advantage, create leverage with something that makes you unique actually can help you stand out more. So what did you do for the mental game of the long game, right? So how did you mentally steward doing the grunt work, being faithful, you know, integrity when no one's watching? How did you do that knowing you're, you're made for more and yet I'm living in this season right now? That is probably one of the hardest things to do. Yeah. So hard because you, you have to wait in expectation that it will get better. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a person of faith. Um, I'm a Christian. And so I, I know from my scriptures that that is, that's part of what we're called to, you know, focus on that, which we can focus on God, right? Focus on the thing right in front of our faces in faith that he will open other doors. And so what it says is instead of this self-aggrandizement and self, self-realization self at any cost, it's humility. Mm. It's, it's serving others. It's putting other people first, believing that when the time is right, mm-hmm. we'll get pushed forward. Mm. So be responsible in the small things, and then you will be entrusted to the bigger things. Yeah, I love that. Okay, so there was a mindset that you had that you knew today's really not flattering investment would have a long-term yield and you didn't have to be personally responsible. So having a faith system really helped you mentally have the grit to stay faithful when it was hard and have that investment. Okay, and so now you're in that moment. Let's say it's a female, maybe younger, trying to grow up in a corporate situation. And so I love the honoring the other person and a little bit of flattery of recognizing them um, and also showing your intelligence, not playing small, but leaning in with strength. So what would that look like from your own experience if you were mentoring um, a younger person in a corporate setting? So, you know, so let's just say you're involved in sales for Mm -hmm. an example, and your job is to sell your product to your client. You're going to want to know your product so well, Mm -hmm. and you're going to want to know your client as much as possible, and you're going to want to know the marketplace. So in other words, you are going to make yourself an expert on something on that area that you're in, whatever that is. Yeah. So you can't fake expertise you can't fake authenticity, you know, and so people see it. And when they see that, you know, what you're talking about, 
boy, that's that that's really at the at the end of the day, that's what matters. Mm-hmm. So I tell people who are in the beginning of their career, even mid career, you've got to figure out something, and then you've got to become the best you can in that area. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was investing in um, understanding Arab culture. So it started with um, mission trips right out of high school. Um, it started uh, in these mission trips were to hard places. It was to Russia and Ukraine after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, I went and, and studied abroad for a semester in Egypt and Cairo of all places right after wow. the Gulf War. I still can't believe my parents said yes. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I decided that if I was going to get anywhere, I was probably going to have to do things differently. So there's this well-tread path, well-worn path. Everybody's going that direction. I'm going to differentiate myself by choosing things that are totally different and weird and unusual. And so I think a series of, of um, uh, pushing past your fear is what made me an expert in, in, in my area and what that enabled me to shine. I love that. And there's an expression, kind of cokey, but it says riches are in the niches. And so instead of trying to be a generalist of knowing everything, if you're listening right now, what is the one thing you're most passionate that causes you to come most alive and then really niche down, decide this is where I want to be an expert and get as much life experience, everything you can to know about that. That way, when you're in the room and, you know, there's the natural flutters and nervous and all of those things, and we'll talk about how to steward that, but your intelligence, your study, your preparation ahead of time really does shine through. And so if we're not putting in the preparation, then we're going to get in that moment. And now we're not going to have anything to say to lean in. So for you, when you were in those moments, what helped you ground your central nervous system that your body could calm down, even though, I mean, these are literally life and death. Like, it's not just like, do I get promoted or not? Like I'm literally sitting against someone who is fine with killing people who look like me and I am a female in this room. Like, how did you do that? Yeah. So, um, it's a very interesting thing that you're asked to do when you're serving undercover abroad. So you're you're holding covert meetings with sources and that is illegal in these countries. So if you're caught in your, um, in your car meeting with your source and you blow your source, first of all, you could get them killed Mm. or, you know, maybe best case scenarios, you get them thrown in jail. Mm. Um, and then you get yourself best case scenario, uh, thrown out of country or you get jailed. So, the, the stakes are incredibly high. And so you are, you know, taught to, um, you know, how do you, how do you carry out a safe source meeting? How do you drive a surveillance detection route to be sure you're not being followed to your meeting? Mm. So, um, talk about nerves, talk about <laughs> yeah. stakes are high. <laughs> yeah. Stakes are super high. And so you're running around breaking the laws of another country. It's, it's a crazy thing you're being entrusted with. by the government. Okay. So what, how, how do you get control of your nervous system? How do you do that? In training, what they do is they, 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 um, put you in increasingly stressful situations. Mm -hmm. So they, they start small and they turn up the heat and turn up the heat and turn up the heat. And so what you do, and then the other thing is, so you start small before you go big. Um, but the other thing is, 
you learn to plan for things to go wrong. I love that. So before you carry out an operation, you try to um, ideate like 50 ways this could go sideways. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm planning this uh, source meeting and I'm going to run this surveillance detection route and we're going to meet in this location and I'm going to debrief my source for intelligence and then I'm going to return wherever to the office or home or whatever. What are 50 things that could happen? And so what you do is you go through those things and you plan for them. If this happens, then I will do this. If that happens, I will react in this way. If this goes sideways, I will react by doing this. And so you plan for all the problems. Wow, that's so good. Again, you know that the one thing you didn't plan for is the one thing that will happen. It's going to happen. (laughs) Right? Number 51 possible thing is going to happen. But because you've trained your brain to expect problems, Mm -hmm. you've trained your brain to think through scenarios of how to answer them, you now have a nimble brain. Mm -hmm. You have a neural network that's been tested. Mm -hmm. So when that thing you didn't anticipate happens, you are mentally capable of reacting quickly, mm-hmm. not losing your focus, wow. and responding in a way that's <laughs> that's not going to get yourself killed, you know, responding yeah. in a way that's the best way possible. Yeah. You're building a strength for something that many people hate about themselves. And in therapy, we're trying to train people not to allow catastrophizing, right? Because catastrophizing is where my brain thinks of all the worst case scenario, but it then just ruminates like a hamster will and thinks about that. And anybody listening right now, if you deal with anxiety, this is the most real thing because one, you don't have a scenario where it works out. So you're actually just reinforcing the negative being bad instead of what you're describing of training your brain and that region of problem solving to say, and then I'll be okay. And then there will be a solution. And then I'll be nimble. Because you don't continue with that brain system, mm-hmm. that, that, um, that kind of thinking right. in the moment. You do it in the office mm-hmm. and you leave it. Yeah. Because if you're running that surveillance detection route and your brain, your brain is still going through, like you just mentioned, yep. all the things that could go wrong, you will fall apart and you won't do anything right. You won't detect the surveillance following you. Right. So the idea is that you have a shutoff moment. I, mm-hmm. I'm prepared. Now we're done. Now I'm executing. Yes. And so that, that's training your brain to focus mm-hmm. the execution phase. Because if you don't, then then you will miss what you're supposed to see. Exactly. So give us the key. How do we start ruminating and catastrophizing and then stop? How do we train ourselves to use a superpower of recognizing bad things can happen, but then now having a moment to say, okay, pause and switch gears. Thank you for investing in yourself, your family, and your team. We are honored to serve you and your vision.